0: We've been in these weeks after Easter lingering in the vicinity of Jesus' tomb. We've been sharing with Jesus' earthly disciples and those who loved him the overwhelming experience of being reunited with him after his crucifixion and after God raised him from the dead. The reading from 1 Peter that Lael just shared with us impresses on us the fact that Jesus' resurrection isn't just an interesting tale reported from the past. A remarkable story for historians to dissect and debate something that you might catch on an episode of In Search Of if anyone else remembers that old series. There's a cable replacement, but I haven't caught it. Rather than that, just a curiosity preserved from the past Jesus' resurrection is the report of an event charged with great significance for us and the lives that we're, that we're living. Whether we are believers in Christ and, li- and seeking to live in fellowship with him or not, Peter reminds us that as believers, as those who seek to live as Christ's servants, he reminds us that through Jesus' resurrection from the dead, We've been born anew to a living hope and an inheritance that God is keeping for us in the heavens. That hope makes it possible for us to rejoice even as we suffer trials. Even as our faith is tested as we await the revelation of Jesus Christ in glory. That realization didn't come to Jesus disciples all at once on the first Easter morning. It took Peter and Jesus' other disciples a while to grasp the significance of Jesus' resurrection and to state it as fully and plainly as the passage from 1 Peter does. As we linger in the vicinity of the tomb, I'd invite you to join me this morning in a second reading as we encounter two of Jesus' disciples on the afternoon of the first Easter. Two disciples who are still in the process of sorting it out and figuring out what the news that they have heard means. And so this reading from the gospel according to Luke, the 24th chapter, beginning at verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus about seven miles from Jerusalem and talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation which you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sorrowful. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet mighty in word and deed before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since this happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us, and enter into his glory and beginning with Moses and all the prophets he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself so ends the reading of the gospel may the Lord add his blessing to the reading and our hearing as we join Cleopas and friend they have weathered the events of Passover and its aftermath and now they're returning home or perhaps to a stage on the way at Emmaus. Looking back over the weekend, trying to make sense of things, and they've got a walk of about two hours ahead of them as our story begins. Before long, they are joined on their way by one they don't at first recognize. This is one of the curiosities of these stories of. Jesus risen from the dead. Mary, Cleopas and his companion don't know Jesus at first. Luke tells us their eyes are kept from recognizing him. And so the stranger joins them and asks, what's the news? And in reply, Cleopas says, don't you know? Aren't you keeping up with current events? The one that we and people like us hoped would redeem Israel, a great prophet named Jesus from Nazareth, he was delivered up by our chief priests and our rulers. He was condemned and executed by the Romans. That was three days ago, and now women who followed Jesus with us have reported his tomb empty and a vision from angels announcing that Jesus lives again. So some men from our group went to the tomb. They found it just as the women had said, but none of us has seen Jesus. That's what Cleopas tells the stranger, all while his and his companion's eyes are kept from recognizing Jesus. And then Jesus gives these two disciples the theology seminar that every theology professor since wishes we could have attended. It's a remarkable lecture. Its theme is the Messiah, God's chosen king to rule over his people and over all the nations. The Messiah had to suffer these things that Jesus had suffered in order to enter into his glory. It's a theme that this stranger shows is illustrated throughout the scriptures of Israel, throughout the Old Testament you find it everywhere you look in the law and the prophets and the Psalms he tells them the Hebrews suffer in Egypt and God raises them up God's people suffer again in exile and he restores them to their homeland and promises them a future even greater than the past has been even greater than the days of David and Solomon the servant of the Lord suffers for the sins of the people, even to the point of death, and God raises him up and makes him see the light of life. The psalmist cries out in Psalm 22, my God, why have you forsaken me? And God restores him to the congregation of his worshipers. We see the same pattern in the psalm that we've just sung together in Psalm 116, the grave Had overcome me but God delivered me. I do so wish that lecture had been recorded and you could dial it up on YouTube to review it anytime you wanted. The lecture comes to its end as these disciples arrive at Emmaus and they insist that the stranger stay with them for supper. And as it's observed, the supper to which they unknowingly invite Jesus becomes the Lord's supper. And so we read in Luke chapter 24 and beginning at verse 30, when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished out of their sight they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven gathered together and those who were with them. And so, the risen Christ continues to teach his disciples because they and we still need his instruction. As someone has said, the church must always be more than a school, but it can never be less than a school. And Jesus continues among us through the power of his spirit as our teacher. But Jesus does more in the presence of these disciples. He shows them that he is present with them. He shows them this in the fellowship that they share, in the breaking of the bread. It's there, Luke tells us, that Jesus was made known to them as Messiah, as Savior, as Lord. It's in the breaking of the bread and the fellowship that it cements that Jesus' disciples can rest assured the risen Christ will be present with us, among us, when we come together in the fellowship of his name, in the breaking of the bread and the sharing of the cup. It's here that we come to receive Christ's instruction anew and to encounter his presence among us afresh as we look forward to another week of life in his service, as we look forward to his return in glory. It's here in the fellowship of the Lord's table where he is the host and breaks the bread and shares the cup with us. It's here that we can come to appreciate all over again the significance of his life and death and resurrection from the dead. The significance of Jesus' resurrection for us, for each of us, was surprisingly, perhaps, given powerful expression just over 85 years ago by a philosopher at the University of Cambridge who wasn't himself a Christian. His name was Ludwig Wittgenstein. He grew up in Vienna, Austria, and I have the impression he didn't suffer as much teasing over his name as he would have if his family had settled in Elgin. He was a brilliant philosopher. He made Bertrand Russell feel inferior, which wasn't an easy thing to do. He was an intense person. He roomed for a time in the same house as a student who was also a friend. Um, it appears that in England, university teachers and students become friends while they're in the teacher-student relationship more easily than they do than we do here in America. At least that's my impression. The student, Wittgenstein's housemate, was a devout evangelical Christian. And early in this house-sharing arrangement, one day over tea, Ludwig asked the student, what was the most important thing in his life? And the student answered at once, it's my relationship with my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Wittgenstein said, no, it's not. And the student replied indignant, how can you say that? And Wittgenstein answered, If the most important thing in your life was your relationship with Jesus, you'd have mentioned him to me before now. I have the impression I'm glad I never had the occasion to room with Dr. Wittgenstein. There might have been some uncomfortable moments. Ludwig's ancestry was Jewish. He was brought up Catholic. But as a teenager, he abandoned any religious faith He had a rather skeptical cast of mind, but yet open to considering all sorts of possibilities, more perhaps than most 20th century philosophers. He attended for a while a study group in which faculty members at Cambridge read and discussed the Gospels, and he gave what the Gospels report serious consideration. He kept notebooks on all sorts of subjects, which his devoted students published after his death. There's a chilling thought, if you'll permit me to pause over it for just a moment. And here, from one of those notebooks, is Ludwig Wittgenstein's Easter meditation from 1937. It's a long quote, but I think you'll be glad if you stay with it. He writes, for his private reflection, not for publication. What inclines even me to believe in Christ's resurrection? It is as though I play with the thought, if he did not rise from the dead, then he decomposed in the grave like any other man. He is dead and decomposed. In that case, he is a teacher like any other and can no longer help And once more, we are orphaned and alone. So we have to content ourselves with wisdom and speculation. We are in a sort of hell where we can do nothing but dream, roofed in, as it were, and cut off from heaven. But if I am to be really saved, what I need is certainty, not wisdom, dreams, or speculation. And this certainty is faith. And faith is faith in what is needed by my heart, my soul, not my speculative intelligence. For it is my soul with its passions, as it were with its flesh and blood, that has to be saved, not my abstract mind. Perhaps we can say, only love can believe the resurrection. Or it is love, that believes the resurrection. We might say redeeming love believes even in the resurrection, holds fast even to the resurrection. What combats doubt is as it were redemption. Holding fast to this must be holding fast to that belief. So what that means is first you must be redeemed and hold on to your redemption, keep hold of your redemption then you will see that you are holding fast to this belief. So this can come about only if you no longer rest your weight on the earth but suspend yourself from heaven. Then everything will be different and it will be no wonder if you can do things that you cannot do now. A man who is suspended looks the same as one who is standing but the interplay of forces within him is nevertheless quite different so that he can act quite differently than a standing man can. Our thanks to Dr. Wittgenstein, to Ludwig for those reflections, which I suggest take us to the heart of the matter, the heart of the significance of Jesus' resurrection in their roundabout and somewhat wordy way. If Jesus is dead, he can't help us. And we need help. Even if the life we know is so pleasant, so rich in earthly delights that in its course, we never realize we need help from beyond that world. We do, beyond this world, we do. That becomes all too clear at the hour of our death. And the help we need can't be found anywhere on earth. It can't be produced by our own efforts or the efforts of other people on our level of existence. No career we can build, no good or service we can buy, no political party or social movement we can join, no technological innovation we can benefit from. None of those is gonna change the fact that this life of ours, this life that is so dear to us comes to an end, that's fact number one. And fact number two is we die knowing that we have not been who and what we should have been, what we were made to be. It's only if there is help from above that we have any hope for fulfillment It's only if we can reach up, as Ludwig put it, and be suspended from heaven, rather than trying to stand in our own strength on the earth, it's only then that we have any prayer of becoming what we are created to be and of being that for all eternity by the grace of a loving God. If Jesus is dead, he is no help to us. But if Jesus is alive, he can help. Our friend Ludwig, though he realized this clearly, was never able to reach up and accept Jesus' help for himself, so it seems. There's a fascinating biography of him that you can read by an author named Ray Monk. But Christians believe that Jesus, though he was crucified, lives again, lives now in the presence of his father and reveals himself among his people. We believe Jesus is ready and willing and able to help us if if we will reach up to him. He died and God raised him from the dead so that we might be born anew. We've staked our lives together, our lives individually on that hope. We believe the risen Jesus offers his help to us and to anyone who sincerely and persistently asks him for it. The help, Luke tells us in his gospel and the book of Acts, is called the Holy Spirit. He tells us that it's God's will through Jesus to pour this help out on all flesh, on everybody, so that all creation might be empowered to be what God made creation to be so that everyone created in his image might live in accordance with his will to the praise of his glory for all time. That's the living hope and the genuine faith to which we have been born anew through the resurrection of Jesus Christ as Peter so boldly puts it. It is the faith that we gather to to celebrate together at the table of the Lord. And so, as we have the past two weeks, let us again proclaim the faith of Easter. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. And now, as we prepare to meet the risen Lord at his table, as we wait for his presence to be revealed in the breaking of the bread and the sharing of the cup, let us profess the faith that the church has learned from the scriptures. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy universal church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.